Nick Stewart, thank you for um, joining me on the podcast. Uh, it's been uh, a, a while in the making, but finally we get some some time. Um, how are you today? Everything in its own good time, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me and having me along. It's always, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk perfume. Yeah, absolutely. Think we're talk about perfume, right? Sorry, what's that? I think we're going to talk about perfume. We're going to talk mainly about perfume and also travel, um, okay. because you, uh, from from my perspective, appear to be living out my dream life. Um, making perfume and also traveling just about everywhere. <laughs> Have you always had those dreams? Like since you were little, like, well, I guess what I'm asking is, was perfume um, a thing for you when you were very young and also this desire to discover the world and explore? I think, uh, to be perfectly honest, perfume came late and well, relatively late into my life. I mean, travel was there from... When I was six weeks old, I went on a plane with my mum when I was six weeks old because she wanted to show off her new baby to family. Uh, and our family is one of these sort of spread all over the place. So travel was a necessity um, from very early on. Perfume, um, listen, I'm not from like a seventh generation Grassoir family. Uh, my mother and father both wore Edmund Runitzker creations, Sauvage, uh. Diorella, Diorissimo. But I didn't really realize who Edward Runitzker was till much later. Uh, I don't think I really wore a perfume till I was about 15 or 16. Okay. So that was... Probably relatively late for people in our perfume world, I think, right? Yeah, I think I was about the, I was about the same. And, and my son, who's 16 years old, has been only started wearing it over the last year but i guess i've i'm been a little bit of a of an influence on him sure you have yeah <laughs> no so, I, certainly, I certainly wasn't one of those people who age four uh was in a field of tuberose in the south of france and declared oh yeah i'm gonna work in the perfume industry because i didn't even know it existed yeah 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 absolutely did, did you have any um specific scent memories from being a child not 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 directly related to perfume but yeah any, i mean any. listen i think for me one of my first scent memories was just being on a balcony with my mum uh in london repotting plants in like terracotta pots so i, I kind of say half jokingly that i love patchouli and i love earthy smells because it was one of the first things i can really remember smelling um but no my childhood wasn't like a scented universe at all. I mean, I think I was probably more conscious of the advertising imagery mm -hmm. of perfumery than I was actually about what anything smelt like. Um, but I'm, you know, listen, I'm a very, I think naturally I seem to be a curious person. So I was like understanding, okay, this is what we see, but what goes on behind it. Um, so I also kind of wondered, even as a teenager, yeah, yeah, but someone must make these products. What's that all about? So there's probably a little bit of curiosity there, but uh, my entry into the perfume world was a complete and utter fluke. Um, so, so you, I, I was just about to ask you uh, about 
your work at Latifan Parfumer. Um, how did that all come about and how long were you there? What did you do there? And Well, listen, I didn't get to Latifan until kind of chapter two. So if I can just rewind and say that um, I probably, some people know this already, but I'd studied Arabic at university um, and Middle Eastern languages and then thought, what the hell am I going to do with my life? So I moved to Paris. Long story short, I ended up working um, for Pooch, which is a huge global corporation that now owns lots and lots of brands that you'll all know, you know, Byredo most recently, for example. Um, So that's how I entered in the, that's how I ended up in perfumery through through languages, effectively. Uh, I didn't get to to Lattes en Parfumer till maybe like a decade later. Um, and that was a sort of, again, another fluke. I mean, people are going to hate me. I'm, just, I'm making it all sound like it was just kind of things that randomly happened in my life. But I was a customer there of L'Artisan since about 1999. Uh, loved the products, knew a lot of the perfumes that they were making. So again, it was just sort of fate calling, maybe. Um, so yeah, I'm a big believer in luck. I following your instinct in business is people never talk about luck and flukes i think it plays a big part um people love to telling you about their grand plans and their grand strategies but no one ever seems to admit that fate deals your hand as well so uh sometimes i think it's just a run good to run with things see where they end absolutely. up absolutely yeah absolutely uh did so the the work you did at Lattice and what did that entail specifically um, well, a little bit of everything, a little bit mm-hmm. like the preparation for running my own small business with Galavant. Um, so I was the creative director. I was in charge of uh, all of the products. I was in charge of all the developments. Um, it was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant time in my life. Uh, Bertrand Duchefort's lab was next. We, our office was above the shop. Um, in central Paris, opposite the, the Louvre Museum. Bertrand's lab was in our office. Uh, and it smelled, it felt like a small family running a business together. Um, it was really quite magical, I have to say. Um, back, back in those days, though, um, cause I, I'm, I'm also pretty familiar with Latissan perfumes. Like I've, I've owned several and, I note that uh, Bertrand uh, is one of the main perfumers, um, yeah. Olivia Giacobetti, yeah, as well. Absolutely. So yeah. ba- back in those days, were they were they the two main perfumers that that Listen, the brand worked Bertrand with? Had sort of a special place because he was our in-house perfumer, mm-hmm. but we um, we didn't have a sort of completely monogamous relationship. So the deal was always: look, if someone c- came with an interesting an interesting idea, an interesting material and interesting story we could always work with other perfumers um and that worked both ways you know he did outside work not exclusively for for l'artisan and to be honest i think for creative people for people like Bertrand who are buzzing with ideas and buzzing with creativity it's it's not really what i want to force them into a space and kind of keep them in a cage good to let them fly and do do things that excite them because inevitably that energy kind of then circles back into the 
the brand itself. Yeah. So I don't think it's good to be too selfish uh, with people you work with either. It's yeah. a good way. It's a good way. It seems like a good way of working. And, and you, I, I, I'm assuming or presuming that um, Lattison was where you worked before you decided to start up Gallivant. How did, how did everything lead up to your decision to do that? Um, that was a sort of coming together of various different forces. I mean, I was about to have a sort of milestone birthday. I was about to uh, enter my 40th year. Um, I think slightly, I, I think slightly in the back of my mind, I thought like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I better do it now. I, I now would say to people that's, not the case. You can do it at any age. Um, but I kind of was reminded um, also by someone at Pooch, because at that time Pooch was also buying our company. They were buying Lattice en Parfumeur and our sister brand, and Halligans. So that was kind of all happening in the back of my mind as well. And someone during that process reminded me that I had told them in a disco in Barcelona in about 1998 oh, I'm not going to be one of these people that works for Pooch for life. I'm going to go off and do something on my own. So I think I'm one of those people that I probably always wanted to create something on my own, be my own boss. Uh, I'm not one of those people that likes being told what to do by other people. I think that's a kind of common thread yeah. in a lot of people who start their own businesses, which is not to say we think we know best. We just don't like being told what to do. Um, and then another part of it was that I kind of was commuting between London and Paris. You know, I have a, a life in London, a work life and a social life in Paris. That was beginning to sort of get a little bit complicated and a bit tiring. I like simple things. I like when life is simple. So I kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to have to go back to London at some stage, not least because my family is here. Um, so yeah, there were three there were three things going on that kind of pushed me to do it, uh, and it was scary. I mean, I remember. I'm sure this is a common reaction. I remember hesitating, thinking, "Here I am in a really nice job that loads of people would like love to have. Isn't this really weird that I would throw it away and go off and take a risk?" Um, you get the fear of starting, the financial fear, of course, yeah. the fear of it might all fail. Um, but again, I think if you've got it in you, this sort of weird desire to create your own business, you've just got to take the leap. And I sometimes when I'm asked advice, uh, I just say, take the leap. Don't overthink it. Don't do a million business plans because that's going to actually stop you from taking any action. Just start. Start it. Have a go, try, yeah. And and at that point, how clear was your was your whole concept for Galavant? Did you have only have a vague idea of what you but wanted to put out? Again, I, I sometimes kind of say to people, it had obviously been years in maceration because I trademarked the name uh, many years previously while I was still an employee of Lattice en Parfumeur. So I'd had the name in my head for a long time because I think it's a great word in English. 
Um, you know, gallivant really means to go around in pursuit of pleasure. Something um, a lot of people here in the UK of my kind of generation that your parents said to you, like, Ooh, where are you off gallivanting? So yeah. there's a sort of sense of humor to it that I like. It's not too serious a word. So I had the idea for the name long before, um, you know, I, I'd even really thought about the concept and the range and what I would do exactly. And then again, I mean, listen, nothing is easy, but I thought, you know what? I love to travel. That mm. will be my concept. That will be my story. Um, I also liked the sort of democracy of a travel idea. Listen, Pep, I never make any claims that the travel and perfume story is the most original concept ever. You know, everything's been done before. It's about how you do it that feels authentic and a bit fresh and interesting. So the travel thing existed, of course, in Luxembourg Parfumeur, but it existed in other brands already. Mm. But I just felt like, okay, this is something people could connect with. You know, sometimes people ask me, why, why just the city name? And I like to say, listen, I was responsible for the name Traversée du Bosphore, crossing the Bosphorus in English, at L'Artisan Parfumeur. And that was a rude awakening for me when I went to the press event in New York with Bertrand. And the New York staff said to me, listen, none of our customers here can pronounce L'Artisan Parfumeur. They'll never be able to pronounce Traversée du Bosphore, however poetic you tell us it is. So we're just going to have to call it Trav. <laughs> oh. I was like, okay, please don't call it Trav. Call it Bosphor. You can say that. But again, I just thought, you know what? Sometimes niche perfumery is its own worst enemy. We make the concepts too elaborate. We make the names all French, even if your brand has got nothing French about it. And hey, guess what? 90% of the world's population can't speak French. Yeah. So... I know it's meant to be sophisticated and elevated, but actually I think it's just a bit of a barrier to actually people discovering our kind of perfumery. Yeah, it's a little bit of marketing as well. It's, sure. it's a bit of pretentious marketing for sure, yeah. isn't it? And I think one thing that I really feel very strongly about from my years at L'Artisan, which was in the DNA of the brand from Jean Laporte, who founded it, as you all know, he was not a snob. Mm. Uh, he was very clear that he wanted all sorts of people with money, without money. Some of our customers at Luxembourg Parfumer saved up and they came to the shop and they bought one 50 ml and that was their treat for the year. And I genuinely think we treated them as a special customer in the same way that someone who was married to the Prime Minister of France came and bought loads of perfumes, got the same kind of treatment. So I sort of had that ethos that, that beautiful perfume should be for all sorts of people, not just the super wealthy. Absolutely. And I, I, I also like the fact that Latison uh, seemed to be the gateway niche perfume for a lot of people. Yeah. That, yeah. that I know. It's like it's definitely got that um, reputation for uh, for accessible niche i guess if, if you want to put it that way there's something for everyone well back yeah. then back then there was um I'm, I'm not sure what the state of the brand is 
I mean, listen, it's it. funny. When you work in a brand, I, I mean, any brand I've worked for historically, but even Galavant today, my own brand, I think sometimes it's really hard for us to articulate exactly what the DNA of the brand, the perfumes, the house is. But I think one of the things that customers at Lattes on Parfumer used to always tell me was they felt a sense of fun and a sense of joy and pleasure. Uh, and that I've really tried to carry into Galavant. You know, perfume is a moment of escapism. It's a moment out of the mundanity of our everyday. And I think when we forget that perfume has got to be pleasurable on your skin, we're not really serving our customers properly. Um, I mean, listen, perfume can be many, many things to many, many different people. It can be a real intellectual exercise. Uh, It could be an installation piece in a, a museum. But for those of us making perfumes as businesses, I think our first job is to make something that's pleasurable and sparks joy for a customer that spends their money with us. Isn't that, isn't that our basic mission? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, personally speaking, I, I don't keep any perfume bottles that don't give me that actual feeling. I, I need to want to wear that, perf- that perfume. And- yeah. So, I mean, I remember yeah. years ago, I started out in uh, 2017 on my own with Galavant. And I won't tell you who said this to me, but I remember having a retailer meeting, presented, you know, the first, I think I had six perfumes ready, four to launch, two to follow. And one of the comments came back is, yeah, these are really nice and really wearable. It's all really quite commercial. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I didn't have the guts to say it. I thought, but you're running a perfume shop. Surely wearable and commercial are words that are like ticks in the box, not a kind of, oh, it's a bit commercial. And I think that's when niche gets a bit of a bad reputation or a, a bit of a bad feeling when customers genuinely feel, oh my God, this is scary and really intimidating <laughs> and that's not for me. I don't know enough. There's certain perfume retailers that really do make you feel a bit dumb and a bit unworthy. And I'm not really sure that's great retailing. Mm, it seems counterintuitive to me. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why would I want to spend my money with you when you've made me feel like a bit of an idiot? I mean, well, maybe I there's a reverse good. psychology there on some level, but it does not appeal to me. There is there is a little bit of this um, psychology uh, of st- status within even perfume consumers and uh, being able to attain very limited edition perfumes at ridiculous prices and you know that's all it's all it all seems a little bit manufactured but that that's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other podcast. <laughs> listen, there's one positive I will say that this growing interest this growing curiosity, this growing desire for a kind of connoisseurship about raw materials, about the perfumers behind the products. All of this is to be massively applauded. But I just hope sometimes people don't lose sight of the fact that it should be an enjoyable kind of hobby, an enjoyable journey, not one which is about slightly sort of showy-offy, ooh, I know what um, you know, uh, ombre seed is, and you don't kind of one-upmanship. 
Yeah. I, I don't think that's very nice, personally. There's an element of snobbery about about all of that kind of thing. So I'm curious to ask you, uh, when Gallivant kicked off, uh, you appear to work with a kind of small group of perfumers uh, um, who who composed the, the perfumes for you. How did you go about that process of knowing who to speak to, then choosing? Um, is there is it is it almost like a casting for for a film? Like you know, you you try out different people's ideas. Listen, one thing I was really clear on is I didn't want to put. Um, sorry, this is a bit jargony, but I didn't want no, to put okay. into competition mm. against each other. And as you all know, Pep, that's often how our industry works. Yeah. Give a brief to um, a composition house. The composition house briefs internally their perfumers, and then they're up against two, three, sometimes four other companies, never mind other perfumers. Yeah. I wanted basically to cut all of that out. I wanted to work with friends, people I'd known so Karine Chevalier, who I think is such a massive talent, but also really importantly to me, she's a brilliant woman. She's got a brilliant sense of humor. That's really important to me. So we had this kind of shared vision of what perfume can be about. Um, so I definitely knew I wanted to work with her. Georgia had been our understudy, is not the good word in English, but she was the apprenti parfumeur under... Bertrand Duchefort at L'Artisan Parfumeur. Mm -hmm. She's Italian, young Italian perfumer, trained at the Grass Institute of Perfumery. So I knew her very, very well on a daily basis at L'Artisan. And I wanted to give her some projects, some work. Um, so it was kind of, I, I don't want to say as easy as that, but I kind of want to say as organic and natural and uncynical as that. I remember somebody saying to me at the time, oh, don't you want like a bigger name? Don't you want like a, a, a Dominique Ropion or why not work with Bertrand de Chauffeur? Mm. To which my answer was, I would love to work again at some stage in the future with Bertrand, but I've just spent years with Bertrand. And if I do this with him, it's almost a bit like saying, this is just L'Artisan Parfumeur continued. Yeah. And I wanted a definite break from that chapter in my life. That was behind me. Gallivant was a new thing with a new energy and a new story. So even though Corrine and Georgia both came from my years in Paris, I wanted them fresh, not doing a love song project for me. Why didn't I choose to go to IFF and whatever and say I want? a Ropion or an Anflipo or something, because I'm a little bit cynical when new brands announce that Dominique Ropion did their perfumes, because I know very well how this industry works. And I know that there are um, library, you know, bibliothèque in French um, compositions, which are almost finished, which have a name on them. Um, and sometimes small brands come and they think they're getting something created from scratch, but they're not. And uh, I, wanted, I wanted all of my formulas to be created 100% from scratch from my idea of what this perfume would smell like. 
See, I, I had no idea. I mean, I had no confirmation that something like that ever happened. But I always almost joked that when these startup brands get some some you know name perfumer on their bottle, it almost seems, and uh, and particularly after smelling a lot of them, it always seems to me that they had some draft of something yeah. that they were working on that. I guess, uh, for want of a better term, um, at a lower price, for instance. <laughs> so it does work kind of like that in, in the big fragrance houses. Listen, it kind of has to. I mean, I think the more, I think Luca Turin sort of said this, the more we pull the curtain back and we sort of show what actually goes on in our little incestuous bubble industry, mm. which is fine, much smaller than I think people perfume lovers, yeah. your listeners, probably don't imagine how small our industry actually is. It's a very small circle. And for perfumers in these, um, you know, composition houses, oil houses, mm. of course they're working on ideas and the idea then gets passed to an understudy who have a go at it. And then the understudy's understudy will have a go at it because they've got to learn. Yeah. It's the way that knowledge is transmitted. And this is entirely correct and entirely valid but we just need to be more honest about it yeah some of these formulas have been worked on over many many years they haven't sold to a client so they're in a library and when a customer comes and asks for a fig fragrance of course the perfume house reaches behind for the library of fig fragrances because they've got to sell their work so you know i'm not saying this is a bad thing i'm just yeah. saying it would be kind of more honest to the customer if we kind of explain that this is how things work there's either the choice like me to go really slow mm. you know, when someone says to me how long does a formula take and i say well kind of averaging three years yeah i mean a car that we launched this summer Stefan and I started that in 2019. So there's a choice and there's a cost to working that way. Yeah. But if you're a brand that suddenly announces, I'm launching next week and I've got 21 formulas, it's hard to believe that 21 formulas have been developed by scratch over the last three or four years. Yeah. So let's just be honest about it. Uh, 100%, 100% agree. So... Let's uh, now let's talk about your your brand in particular. So I'm I'm very curious that when you um, released when you launched the first line, that I I think you're probably one of the first brands I remember coming out with a 30 mil bottle size, which I personally really appreciate because oh, just that's nice that having. Just having that size option available um, obviously makes it more affordable to own yeah. a, pro a product. Um, what what made you go that direction, and what was there anything? Listen, I think the best that? the best advice I've ever had about being in business, and you know, there, I'd love to say there are many types of entrepreneur. There isn't one template, which maybe sometimes when you read the press and you sort of watch these like uh, Dragon's Den programs, which I don't watch, but there's a kind of, oh, that's what entrepreneurs are like. And I think the reality is we're just all human beings scrabbling our way through like the rest of humanity. 
So for me, the best advice I've ever had is just trust your own instincts mm. and try and pull it off well. And I felt like, you know what, there's a lot of perfume in the world. Um, if I can just be a small little part of your perfume wardrobe, <coughs> I'll be thrilled. I mean, really, I'd be thrilled to have any customers, right? Because that's how you feel at the beginning. Yeah. So I thought the 30 ml was a really nice way of saying, I'm not asking for monogamy. I know you've got other lovers. You've got other things in your perfume wardrobe, your perfume life. And I'm not saying that's all got to go and here's Galavant. Just please, maybe I can be one little bottle in your wardrobe. So that's where it came from. I liked the idea as well of it being travel friendly. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea that people go places with their perfume and use it. It doesn't sit in a cupboard at home, un un unloved, a bit forgotten, unused. Um, so that was really where I started with 30 mLs. I mean, I remember a, a kind of good friend who's much more on the business side of our industry, sort of saying to me, trying to give me advice, you know, Nick, listen, you do realize that like the margin on your 30 mL is going to be a challenge. It's almost as much to make a 30 mL as it is to make a 100 mL. And obviously you make more money on the 100. So from a purely business perspective, it probably wasn't the most um, lucrative decision to make. But I have to say, I think it's served us well. I think customers feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a, a brand of perfume lovers. They thought about what perfume can be and a perfume wardrobe. So yeah, it's, it's, it's done very well for us. Yeah. I'm not sure that, I mean, I'm, I, I can't assume that everyone else would think like I do, but uh, I'm inclined to go to buy the smallest size of a bottle when I like uh, a particular perfume. But, yeah. um, but if I do decide that's a keeper, you know, and I finish that bottle, if there's a bigger one available, then I'd go for that. And I note that you now have 100 mil options available for yeah. perfumes. And again, that was an entirely, uh, I'm going to sound like I've got no, um, what's the word, strategic brain. <laughs> but basically that came about because I've got this brilliant, brilliant customer. Uh, she probably won't mind if I say her name, Olga, yeah. who wears a lot of Istanbul. Mm. And, you know, when she was putting in orders for like five 30 ml bottles, I thought, oh, she must be like gifting them to people. She can't be wearing all of this perfume herself, but no, no, no. She's wearing it and spraying her clothes and her curtains and her fabrics and everything with this very expensive formula. But she was the one that basically said to me, can't you make me a bigger bottle? And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe some customers do want a bigger bottle. And then it turned out, yeah, there are customers who want bigger bottles. And then there are, to be honest, I have to say there are certain regions that I've realized they want the bigger bottle because they use more perfume. I'm talking about the Middle East, uh, most notably. You know, we used to sell 30 mLs to our Middle Eastern customers. Over time, we've sort of realized they wear a lot of fragrance. They go through it really quickly. Again, they would rather have a big 100 ml bottle. So it's not really a kind of strategic decision for us other than the customers asked, we say we'll make, we'll make them to order. The other really funny thing was about that is that Suad, uh, who is my right hand, really runs the business day to day with me. 
she, I sort of said to her, like, which ones will we make? Obviously, we have to make Istanbul of Olga, but like, which other ones? A few weeks later, Beth, she came back and said, we don't really have this massive bestseller and everything else is like way, way behind it. We sell as a brand really broad. So in the end, we're like, we basically have to make all of them because our bottom seller mm-hmm. isn't actually that far off our top seller, which I think is quite unusual in perfume brands. So yeah, we make all of them in 100 ml now. Yeah, that, yeah. That's great. With, with um, I, I do want to slightly go back to the development process. So I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, obviously with some perfumes it can take, years to you know start with an idea and get the the finished product i'm is it right to assume that you uh act obviously not only as the owner of of the brand but as the evaluator like with the perfumers uh so they will give you a version to smell and you would give them feedback and notes or, or whatever is that yeah, pretty much exactly. how it works? i mean i want it to be uh, a collaboration in the real sense of the term i want it mm. to be a conversation that pings back and forth between us uh, i mean it's one of the reasons i kind of love working with fr- effectively friends like Karine Chevalier, because, you know, it's not necessarily about having an evaluation meeting where we sit for an hour. We really, sometimes it's just pinging messages back and forth. Karine, I'm wearing it today. I'm in uh, Saudi Arabia and I'm in like 30 degree heat. It's really humid. I'm drenched in sweat. You kind of don't want to know that, but, you know, that's <laughs> real. Um, this is my experience of wearing the perfume today. So it's a lot more fluid than maybe people imagine as well. And I personally really love that. I think the perfumers I work with really enjoy that. It doesn't have to be so formal. Yeah. Um, I think the thing probably they find tricky uh, and unnerving is we might have a new, a new, what we call mod modification a revision on the idea, a revision on the formula, they'll send it to me. I might go a bit radio silent for like two or three weeks because I'm wearing it. I'm wearing it and I'm wearing it. I'm spraying other people. I'm smelling it on them. And of course, as a creative person, you've put this idea out. You're kind of, you want some validation. You want some feedback. And I'm like, I'm not ready yet. (laughs) So that's hard. That's, I think, where I'm demanding a lot of patience. Um, And I'm demanding their trust that I'll come back with really constructive thoughts and constructive feedback. Um, Because, of course, they want to know immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Do do you start off, I mean, uh, for, for those listening who don't know uh, the the perfumes are all named slash inspired slash inspired by cities around yeah. the world or places yeah. around the world places i've been to yeah 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 so uh i'm is it a an organic thing so you happen to be traveling to a place uh and you think hmm, there this place has a unique scent profile or or something like that, and you go back and say, oh, I, want, I want something. Yeah, Pep, sometimes it's not even a particular scent memory. Mm. It's just that I feel something 
I feel something emotional. I feel something, a vibration. That was the case with Uzbekistan, for example, where I really, it was a, it was a personal holiday. It was a trip. I'd always wanted to go to Central Asia. So I traveled across Kazakhstan, which as you probably know, is a massive, massive country, really unknown. I mean, I think it's like the fifth biggest country in the world by land mass, mm. but no one really kind of knows anything about it. And then Uzbekistan is a doubly landlocked country. I think it's, there's only two doubly locked land country, landlocked countries in the world. I think the other one's the Central African Republic. So I'm kind of a bit, a bit geeky. I like these things. I like going to these kind of places. I never expected, I never had the expectation that a perfume would come out of it. So I went to across the Silk Road through Central Asia. I came back. I happened to be speaking to Ralph, Ralph Schwieger, who is, a, of course, you all know him as this sort of legendary talent, master perfumer. Uh, I know him as a friend. Um, in fact, when we first met each other and for the first couple of subsequent meetings, we didn't know that we both worked in perfume. I, honestly, people don't oh, okay. believe it, but it's true. We yeah. were introduced at a dinner in New York through a mutual friend. We were talking, we were laughing. I, I don't ask every time, what do you do for a career? I just thought he was really amusing and dry. We became friends. So I came back from Central Asia. I was telling him about the trip because Ralph loves to travel as well and had mm. never been to that part of the world. And I was talking about, you know, the dryness, you know, Bukhara, Samarkand, Khiva in the far west are all oasis cities. So I was just trying to tell him about my trip. I was telling him about the food because, you know, we both like food. So we talk about what we eat. I was talking about this plov, which is like a pilau dish with diced carrots. So I think he was the one actually that came up with the idea of, oh, like dry, a bit vegetal, oris, right? Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't start off with a, a Michael Edwards, you know, wheel where I'm going, oh, there's like, we don't have a, an Oris perfume in our collection right now. I better find a perfumer that's good with Oris and knows how to work it. It's, I want this business to be really enjoyable for me. Yeah, selfishly. yeah. And my hope is that if I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm enjoying the perfumes and I love wearing all of them, which I do, Hopefully, somehow, that energy goes out into the world. So I, I, think that, I think that's the way I want to do it. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I mean, I, I had uh, a, a feeling like that the first time I wore Brooklyn by Gallivant. And it, it, if you smell that perfume, I mean, when I smell that perfume, I, there's no way I could make any actual connection between the place and what I was smelling but yeah. but that's what what i liked about it because yeah. it, for, for i mean in my opinion brooklyn is a very sunny bright uplifting kind of i mean it's it's definitely my favorite of the several that i've tried from gallivant and, well, and nice um but you know i've never been to brooklyn or new york for that matter but okay. i it does make me it does actually make me imagine what Brooklyn might be like on a summer's day, uh, walking, walking through the parks, you know, like it, it still has the, the, the ability to conjure an image, whether it's accurate or, or not. 
Yeah, and I think you've hit upon something that's really important to me. It's like sometimes when people say to me, ah, London by Gallivant, so this is the smell of London. Mm. No, no, I never, I'm never making the claim. It's too grand an idea, isn't it? Well, I've single-handedly bottled the smell of this city. <laughs> this is a moment that I had in my head. Um, each one is a really personal moment to me. The Brooklyn, for me, is this really quite cozy feeling of being with friends in Brooklyn, but also their energy, which is really sunny, optimistic. Yeah. Uh, and I'd love to be a sunny, optimistic kind of person. So yeah, I'm just attracted. Uh, that's the energy I was attracted to for the place. Yeah. And I wanted to try and capture in the perfume. Yeah. But it's not to ever say, oh yeah, yeah, this is, when you go to Brooklyn, this is what you're going to smell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that would be, a, I think, a bit ludicrous, personally, to say that. And it's not really what travel, the travel idea in perfumery is about, is it? It's like when you sort of hear, you know, Christine at Aylmes, for example, talk about a journey, a moment, an inspiration, I think she captures it really well. It's like listening to a piece of music. Yeah. It's feeling something. And perfumery is the output of that. Yeah. It's very, very it, I mean, very abstract, really. Um, yeah. What are your uh, upcoming travel plans? Well, listen, I've traveled a lot this year. I mean, mm. I've just been in the Middle You've East. You've only just gotten um, back, right? Yeah. On a work trip. That was quite crazy because I did like uh, six cities in eight days. So I was yeah. in the UAE. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, which was really great. I love the UAE. Um, then I was in Kuwait. Then I was in Saudi Arabia. So I covered quite a lot of ground. Um, and I love, do you know what? I love going to places that people have got very fixed ideas about what they're like. And then personally discovering, oh, this is surprising because our idea of what Saudi Arabia even looks like is wildly different at this point to the yeah. image in most people's heads. Um, so I found that very intriguing. So give me a year or so, give me one to two years, I'm sure something will come out of that trip. Uh, I was very lucky in September, I had the most brilliant trip. I traveled overland from London to Morocco. Um, uh, it's a great way of traveling. Through the tunnel? Through the tunnel trains, buses, ferries. Wow. Um, it has some of the romance of travel rather than just going on a really claustrophobic kind of flight for three hours. Um, so I, I think I'm going to do more of that. I yeah. want to do more of that. Uh, Morocco I've been to before. Yeah. Uh, the timing was slightly unfortunate because they'd had very tragically an earthquake. I think the Day I left London for France, the earthquake happened, and loads mm. of people said to me, oh, "Are you going to cancel the trip?" I said, "No, I'm not going to cancel the trip, and I'm glad I didn't because when I got to Morocco, the Moroccans were quite understandably, um, excuse my language, pissed off with yeah. people cancelling their journeys because the earthquake is in one region of the country, you're like hundreds of kilometres away, and they're dependent on tourism." Absolutely. So when everyone cancels, it's like, okay, people have not got work and an income now because you think it's dangerous coming here. So I'm really glad that I went. 
Um, I hadn't been to Tangier in the north and Fez, which is a very historic uh, old capital. So yeah, I'm sure uh, that's all in maturation and maceration. I want to do something on that journey, yeah. Yeah. Given how big the world is and how many places you have not seen, are there still places that you need to actually return to? Oh yeah, I'm really I'm due. I I uh, haven't been to Lebanon for several mm. years. When I studied Arabic, I lived in Syria, so mm. just next door in Damascus. I was a frequent visitor to Lebanon and to Beirut, which I has a real soft spot in my heart. Yeah. I was. I'd love to go back to Lebanon at some stage in the next couple of months. Um, I mean, I, I worked out recently, and forgive me if this sounds like I'm kind of showing off. I think I've been to about seventy-five countries. Wow! But of course, sometimes I've been to a country, but I've seen a, one tiny corner of it. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of places that I want to go back to to explore further. How many countries are there in the world? I think it's like 200 plus. For so sure. there's a lot of places I still want to go in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky. I've traveled a lot, but I'm very conscious that there's more than half the world I've never seen. So, yeah. In, mm, invite uh, me places. Tell me places to go. How about Australia? Have you been to Australia? I have been to Australia. Yeah. I, haven't been to, I haven't been back to Australia since... Um, God, probably 15 or 16 years, unfortunately. And it's oh, okay. one of those places, again, I have to really sadly admit I know 1% of it. I've been to like Melbourne, Brisbane, Noosa, Sydney. I think, a, I think a lot, a lot of Australians. Of Australia. are the Byron same. Bay, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was a proper hippie place. And I a tent for like $5 a night or something. I'm sure yeah. that's not what Byron Bay is like these days. I think everything's no. really super expensive. No. Maybe $500 um, a night now. <laughs> yeah. So I probably won't afford to be able to go back to Byron. So yeah, I, I, I'd love to come back to Australia. Yeah, I'm way overdue a return visit there. Yeah. Excellent. Um, one final question before we wrap up, Nick, because uh, we've, we've already been here 46 minutes, which is awesome. That's a good sign. <laughs> um, what do you think is the biggest change? I mean, we might have already covered this, but what's the biggest change that you've witnessed in the perfume industry since you started in it, I guess? Ooh, um, the explosion of niche, mm. for sure. I think that's the big, uh, that would be for me the big headline. Um, and this is maybe really unfair of me to say this, but I'm a little bit like overwhelmed with niche at the moment. I, I think I'm probably not alone in, in saying not. that. I'm, I'm slightly nostalgic for the days, and, and this is unfair, possibly, where it was kind of Serge Lutens, Goutal, L'Artisan Parfumeur. We didn't yeah. have to worry about 300 other brands launching at Xsense next March. It was like, no, there's kind of a handful of people doing this. Um, I'm slightly nostalgic for the, the old days when things were a bit more simple. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess I think there's probably at this point two kind of brands. There's what I would call authentic, honest niche perfumery. Yeah. And there's kind of like, it feels like a business plan 
Um, and listen, honestly, I, I say good luck to every single person launching their business because I know it's not easy. I'm doing this every day and it's not easy. So I really do genuinely hope it works for them. But I feel a bit like not everything has to be monetized. Not every idea has to be turned into a business. Not every business has to scale and exit and sell to hedge funds or the Estee Lauder Corporation. Um, As their aim, yes. <laughs> you know, I just, I just think let's all be a little less greedy and a little mm. bit more humble, maybe. Um, the world needs Trying to make beautiful things that can be a special moment in someone's life. I mean, the other day, sorry, short anecdote, a customer came. He's actually from San Francisco, passing through London. He's a little bit of a perfume lover, but not massively into perfume. Yeah. He came here just on an off chance. He bought Los Angeles. He bought Los Angeles perfume oil that I now make. He messaged me. He was on his way to a yoga retreat in Austria. He messaged me saying, I'm on a train from Austria to Berlin. It's really stressful. I've just put on your Los Angeles perfumed oil and it's a magic moment. I suddenly feel the world is okay. And it really Pep, made my day. I mean, I isn't that wonderful? That. That's absolutely great. Perfume can do that for yeah. someone in the moment of, I don't know what was going on, but it was clearly not pleasant. So I think I don't personally want to lose sight of that's what mm. I do every day. Yeah. That's what yeah. I try and make. Um, you know, we've been going almost seven years. I am full of gratitude every single day for anyone that buys a perfume we make because, my God, there's so much choice out there. Yeah. How they found us. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I really feel gratitude for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think uh, niche It's wonderful that it's growing. It's wonderful that people know there's a different kind of perfumery, but I just want niche to stay a bit special too, because that's what kind of people want to find in it. And and I think um, also sometimes the the intention of the people behind the brands really comes through for for consumers. You know, like if, if people take I hope so. a bit Absolutely. of time to get yeah. to know. Um, the creators of of these things, um, because there are, let's face it, there are a lot of kind of bland, almost no face behind the brand, yeah, uh, products out there, um, and it's and it's good, it's good, even platforms like this, uh, um, you know, let people become aware um, and find out more about it. You know, obviously, um, if anyone's listening, you can check out. Galavant's website. I'm going to put that in the description. But uh, for today, Nick Stewart, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to finally speak to you. Um, I know we've met before, but very, very been. briefly. Parties generally, which <laughs> yes. is no bad way to meet people. You know, it's good. It's a great, it's a great place, and you know, every everyone's a little bit um, relaxed with a few yeah. drinks in them, and it's it's very easy but for introverts. Is, is key in perfumery, right? I think. Do you know? Can I just say one final thing? I think sometimes what's really lovely, and I mm. again really genuinely 
have a lot of gratitude for this is customers like send me letters and emails. When we turned five, one of our customers baked me a cake in the shape of a bottle. Oh. Put five on top. I mean, honestly, it's really quite like tear in the eye. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, they're always saying to us, oh my God, your customer service is amazing. I can't believe like Nick, I can't believe you responded to an email about my missed delivery or something. And I sort of want to always say to people, look, you know, there's a lot of niche companies and I think probably you don't realize that the people behind them are really involved in running yeah. their own small businesses. We're all really human businesses. And I think try to remember all of us are just human. And that's, I think, one of the special things that makes the perfume world and the niche perfumery world really special for me and really addictive. Why I'm still doing it like 27 years later is because of the people. It's really a very human trade, a very human business where people talk to each other. And that's lovely and special and not something that I want with all the technology and all the AI can do this and blah, blah, blah. I just don't want that to happen to perfumery in a way. I want it to remain a little bit of an analog, human, eccentric, crazy business. Absolutely. And on that basically perfect note, um, I want to say thank you for joining me today, Nick. That was a, a great conversation for me. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me and uh, thank you very much everyone for listening. I appreciate it.